You're listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Kyle Kettleson and Danielle Denise are backstage at Lyric. There's a great humanity about these two characters. They're very accessible, and they're the everyday people, really. They're very earthy and very real and honest, I think, with each other, and they are simple. They are people with a lot of emotion and a lot of heart, but they are... They are working in a particular class structure where they, you know, the simple joys, love, marriage, a, a, a good living, health, and that's as much as they could possibly dream of wanting. So, they display their their emotions, and we run the gamut, especially Figaro, as you know, the jealousy and the love yeah. and, the, and the anger um, that everyone can relate to, regardless of what time it's being viewed. Thank you for downloading this episode of Backstage at Lyric. I'm Roger Pines of Lyric Opera of Chicago. We'll be playing an audio transcript of the Lyric Opera Discovery Series session for Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. For those of you who may not be aware of the Discovery Series, it's panel discussions featuring singers, conductors, directors, and opera experts. We do one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it's a great way to get up close and personal with our artists. You can check out our website at lyricopera.org for dates, tickets, and complete Discovery Series information. We include all of the Discovery Series sessions as part of the Backstage at Lyric podcast. And now, on to the Discovery Series panel devoted to The Marriage of Figaro, with two internationally renowned artists, bass baritone Kyle Kettleson, who's singing the title role, and soprano Danielle Denise, who's portraying Figaro's beloved Susanna. They interacted a very lively discussion about this opera and the characters they play in it. I'm your host for this session, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone. I can't believe this is our final Discovery Series session of the season. How many of you have been to all the Discovery Series sessions? Oh, lots of you. I'm so glad. Well, please tell all your friends about the series so that we can see all of you and all of them uh, next season. I'm Roger Pines, dramaturg at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and welcome to our session on Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Before we go any further, I want to ask everyone to please turn off your cell phones, anything that beeps or makes any sort of unwanted sound. Uh, we are going to have audience questions this evening, so at a particular point in our session, I will ask you to pass your cards with your questions on them to the center, and my colleagues will come by and pick them up and we will answer as many of those questions as we have time for. I am thrilled that our Susanna and our Figaro are with us tonight, and I'm very grateful that they're able to do the Discovery Series after opening the production only yesterday. Danielle Denise began this season singing Susanna at the Metropolitan Opera. She sung that role and Mozart's Despina in Amsterdam, where she made her European debut as Cleopatra in Julius Caesar. Cleopatra, which marked her debut at Lyric a couple of seasons ago, brought her to international prominence at Glyndebourne Festival Opera. 
She's reprised her portrayal twice there, also at the Met, Paris, and Brussels. She's Australian-born, was raised in America. She's an alumna of the Young Artist Program at the Metropolitan Opera, where she debuted at age 19 as Mozart's Barbarina in Figaro. Last season, her Eurydice in Orfeo ed Eurydice was seen worldwide in the Met's HD transmission. Other successes range from Asus and Galatea at Covent Garden, Rodolinda in Toronto, and Ario Dante in Paris, to Falstaff in Santa Fe and Johnny Skiki in Los Angeles. Ms. Denise debuted at Chicago Opera Theater as Monteverdi's Popea, which she has sung at Glyndebourne and Amsterdam, and which she will sing in Madrid later this season. Her discography includes recent solo discs of Mozart and Handel arias. Kyle Kettleson has sung Mozart's Figaro in many international houses, including Covent Garden, and it was recently his debut vehicle in Genoa, and it marked his return to Barcelona. He began his current season at Lyric as Mephistopheles in Our Faust. He's previously been heard here as Mazzetto in the new Don Giovanni that opened the company's 50th anniversary season. He'll be back with us next season as Escamillo in Carmen. This summer he'll be at Aix-en-Provence as Leporello. He began rehearsals for this Figaro at Lyric immediately after performances of the Rake's Progress at Covent Garden, where he's established as a favorite artist with appearances in Orlando, Mascarade, Carmen, The Magic Flute, and Don Giovanni. He starred in Tales of Hoffman in Hamburg. He's portrayed Escamillo at both San Francisco Opera and Netherlands Opera. He's appeared at the Met and with the major companies of St. Louis and Washington, among many others. He's heard regularly with major orchestras, and his recording of Stravinsky's Pulcinella with the CSO is now out on CD. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series Danielle Denise and Kyle Kettleson. So formal. Good evening. <laughs> this opera Hello, is impossible to reduce to 200 words, so I'm just, just to refresh your memories just a little bit, Susanna is the Countess's maid, and Figaro is the Count's valet. The two servants are to be married, but they reckon without the Count's designs on Susanna. Aided by the Countess, who is distressed by the Count's interest in other women, Figaro and Susanna decide to teach the Count a lesson. Along the way, Figaro learns that he is no orphan, but the son of Dr. Bartolo and Marcellina. Marcellina is Bartolo's housekeeper, who had previously been desperate for Figaro to marry her. Others in the cast include the page boy Carabino, who's desperately in love with Susanna, the Countess, and every other woman in the Count's castle, (laughs) and Don Basilio, the busybody music master. Needless to say, the Count is taught a lesson, and it all happens in the course of a single day. Okay, so... (laughs) The story originated with the, the play The Marriage of Figaro by Beaumarchais. So I wanted to ask both of you, does it help to read Beaumarchais? Um, I have to admit I've never read the play. I've read excerpts from it. And um, uh, it's one of those things, that I, I, it's, it's on my list, but I'm a lifelong procrastinator, so I'll get to it eventually. I hope to have a long career, so maybe before I finish, I'll, I'll get to it. But honestly, I, I, I do believe there is an advantage as a performer in reading, uh, in reading the play. Um, there are many character traits that you are not aware of uh, in the opera, in the libretto by Da Ponte. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, are there, are there any characters that are, that are not included in a, Figaro which are... A couple. They're yeah. just not that important. Right. And there's something, there are a couple of important things about Cherubino, I believe, that are, 
that come to mind, or rather, don't come to mind in this point in this <laughs> instance because I don't remember what they were. But I've heard them in the you know in the the gossip uh, columns. Um, but I, I do think there's an advantage to it. Have you read it? Yes, um, but I'm just a complete nerd. I did it in high school. I was like a music freak. But that was only a few years ago, so. <laughs> um, yeah, I read it, and um, it's a great read, obviously. That's why they chose it. Um, it was a while ago, but what I remember doing with it was um, going through the play, and you could see very easily where the scenes had been plucked out by Da Ponte. So, like, I just sort of remember writing, like, the duet and then, like, bracketing a section of dialogue where it was just directly taken. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think there are some advantages to it. I don't know that it's necessarily something that, uh, okay, if you haven't read it, then it shows. I think that... Um, sometimes a small piece of information about a character or a context that you read when you're reading the entire play um, can become evident and maybe it just sits somewhere in the back of your head. Yeah, somewhere. I don't think that it would necessarily uh, show to yeah, the Yeah, I don't think you'd suddenly even... look like you knew the character better yeah. from having read the play. Um, but it's a bit like, I suppose, if you see a film adaptation of a book and when you've read the book, you feel like you know a character inside out. When you see a film, you, you do recognize the same character, but it's condensed, obviously. So um, Da Ponte couldn't... I mean, Figaro is long, actually. Yeah. It's very, very long. But it's not the same thing as reading the entire play. What's really brilliant is the adaptation itself because your aria, your fourth act aria, Kyle, I think in the play, I think that... That idea, that text for that moment goes on for, I think, five pages. It feels like the Aria does, too, at times. <laughs> <laughs> um, you are playing two exceedingly likable characters, I think. Have you ever thought about why audiences adore Figaro and Susanna so much? I think um, there's a great humanity about these two characters they're very accessible um and they're the everyday people really um they are obviously the working class um they're very earthy and very um real and honest i think with each other and they are simple they are people with a lot of emotion and a lot of heart but they are they are working in a particular class structure where they you know the simple joys love marriage a, a, a good living health and that's as much as they could possibly dream of wanting. So um, I think that that comes through almost in every scene you, you, yeah. in, from the beginning. Yeah, like you say, they're the everyday people. They're the underdog. And I think you, as viewers, you like to root for the underdog. And there are no pretenses. There's no station. Yeah. Um, they're not royalty. Um, they're just, like you say, the working class. And um, they, they display their their emotions and we run the gamut especially Figaro as you know the jealousy and the love yeah. and, the, and the anger um, that everyone can relate to regardless of what time it's being viewed you know this hadn't occurred to me before but when I was putting these questions together I thought oh how about this and I'm wondering if the two of you have ever thought of it we can assume that they met, the two of them, as servants in the castle of the Count. By the time we meet them, they're about to get married, and they seem to know each other pretty well. So the question is, what was their courtship like? How did they actually get to know each other? I mean, you, they couldn't, like, go off on a date to a movie, so what did they do instead, <laughs> you know? How did they get to know each other? 
Probably in the laundry, washing the count countesses, <laughs> un uh, washing the the uh, the uh, unmentionables. Uh, how? Because Figaro would wouldn't have been doing that. No? I don't think people dated I guess then. He's though. kind of the higher. <laughs> I think that. I mean, have you ever noticed that? Um, if you went to school with someone, you you feel like you knew them. If someone says, did you know such and such? And you're, oh, I know them. I went to school with them. And I think by the sort of encapsulated surroundings of being in the same working and living mm -hmm. space, um, you can sense a lot about a person and know a lot about them from just being... It's like being in a small village, really. And um, there are lots of people that you went to school with that um, you probably didn't have more than two conversations with, but you know them. And... I would imagine Figaro and Susanna probably, you know, maybe even grew up. I mean, maybe from Barbarina's age, they were already there in and around and probably did wash laundry together and uh, <laughs> have a little conversation. We initially see them and listen to them in two recitatives and two duets. So by the time Susanna makes her first exit, we've spent basically between 10 and 15 minutes with the two of them. So... What did both of you want us to learn about them in that first very important scene that they have together? Well, I think the, the basic uh, theme of the show is kind of unveiled during this first period. We, we established that, yes, it's the day of our wedding. Um, we're very excited about it. We've chosen this room next to the Count. She says, well, I don't want to be in this room because the Count is this way. Um, he's going to repeal... Um, the uh, or he's going to re he's going to uh, reinstate. Yeah, he's going to he's going to put a, a ban on the repeal or no repeal the ban as they say now with <laughs> legislation. There's a ban and they repeal the ban. And they repeal the repeal the ban. Um, he's yeah he's going to make it, uh, uh, which I think is one of your questions later regarding um, the count's first night uh, first night rights, rights to the right. to the bride. Right. And so we're 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 uh, conveying all this information and. Um, and I think that's, uh, you know, it sets the theme for a lot of what's, what follows for the next three and a half hours. I think it's a really tricky thing. Um, for Susanna and Figaro in this first ten minutes, it's really important that the audience understand immediately their rapport with each other, their mm -hmm. relationship to each other. You have to feel that love because after that scene, you have to be on their side for the rest of the piece and be rooting for them. And um, yeah. I know when we, when we started staging, I mean, you, it is, sometimes you go into rehearsals, and, you know, Kyle and I had never met, so the first day that we started to do this scene is the first day that we met. And you immediately <laughs> have to jump into becoming comfortable with a person, and, and it is very important that you have a good working chemistry with this particular relationship because their their fundamental love for one another is i think the quality that the countess sees every day and makes her so wistful to regain that from the count i mean i think she sees how much they love each other and just wishes every day why can't my husband love me in this way and so that love has to be very inspiring and at the same time you can't start the scene out by sort of jumping on top of one another to show that you love each other. So there's like a tenderness and a sweetness and look and a glance. But they do end that first duet with one jumping on top of the other, right? A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Did, I think they made the sheet smaller, didn't they? Um. I 
think they did. You see, Figaro is supposed to pull that sheet over, and we've had this big sheet, and when you pulled it over, it just I was, like we were still visible. I, it, was, it was my fault. It was my fault last night for the opening of the show because I had forgotten about it. I was in the moment so much. We finished the we finished the duet, and I said, and I said to myself, "Oh, we need the sheet." So okay. Reach and get the sheet and oh, pull it. Oh, because to me it seemed like a strip or something. Well, it's because I pulled it and it kind of collapsed <laughs> upon itself and landed like that. So. That's one of the really fun things about doing Figaro is that you just, you can rehearse and rehearse and rehearse. and Or any show. So, huh? Or any show. Yeah, yeah. With, uh, yeah. but I think the, the laughs are more with the show. Like when things can just go wrong. I mean, things happen and thing, people react differently and Figaro's, you know, I mean, we laughed a lot yesterday. I mean, I did anyway. So did the, so, so did the audience. The there was there were so yeah. many what laughs. An great audience. Great. Yeah, yeah it was a God. great audience yeah, yesterday. Um, Kyle, what is the relationship like between Figaro and the Count um, next to Susanna? Next to your relationship with Susanna, that's the most important relationship in your life. So, how do they function day to day, the two of them? Well, I think the relationship has deteriorated. I like to think of the Barber of Seville, Rossini's piece, um, and from a different play. Uh, um, I, I like to think of their relationship and refer to it, re- refer to the relationship in that piece, and then compare that to how we feel toward each other in The Marriage of Figaro. Um, I think, and I kind of, I liken it to... Um, to maybe, uh, well, I've, I have a military background, and, and sometimes you know you become on a you have a first name basis with your commanding officer or your squad leader or whatever, and behind closed doors it's you know first name buddy buddy, but when you're out in the open, you know you don't question me in front of the troops, you don't you follow orders, you refer to me as sir or sergeant or whatever, and um, it, I think it's kind of that way. And it's maybe even deteriorated past that, so that Figaro resents him. I, maybe a mutual resentment, especially considering what we learn in the first scene about you know the count, you know, desiring my wife, regardless of our past friendship. Um, and I honestly, after the after the show ends, and I know Danielle likes to convey this at the end when the countess uh, um, uh, forgives the count. And then we sing, you know, we're all going to be happy again. And I, I look across and I see the look on your face and I think, yeah, that's, I should be looking that way too. You think, okay, she forgave him, but that means we're going to probably go back to more of the same. Or, you know, I would hope that, I wonder if it would, if the Count really learns a lesson there or if we are indeed going back to, okay, the Count got away with it again. He got, he was forgiven again. So next month, what's to keep this from happening again with the next bride in his, in his, uh, one of his servants? So what is that look then conveying finally? Is it that, have you made up your mind as Susanna what the future is going to be when you look at Figaro at the end of that scene? Well, when I look at Figaro, I'm just, it's pure love. <laughs> but, um, well, I, the, the unfolding of events of the way in which the Countess has to stoop to this whole deceit in order to catch her husband in the hopes that he'll repent... Um, it's very shameful for her. And, um, I mean, I feel terrible when I have to reveal myself. Uh, you know, as I'm really Susanna. And then, 
and then everybody's just looking at him and you know he he has to ask for forgiveness and yeah. Marius is incredible Marius Kvitschin is playing the count and he he is very sincere you never know in that moment whether people are going to laugh because it it can be laughable sometimes depending do. on really literally a nanosecond of time given or taken um and the timing of that worked out perfectly but also i think part of the thing that contributed to it was you know we were all really really angry in that moment with the count and um when she forgives him i mean her goodness is what shows through and I, when i when you turn around and say a tutti contenti I, i'm just thinking about the countess and like you know how good this woman is to forgive him that she really must love him um to to forgive him and also you know this theme about the uprising of the servants was something that was very radical at the time that the play was written. So um, it had to end with happy ending. It had to be tied up, and no matter, no matter how the envelope was pushed in terms of the message that was being sent through the play, it couldn't end with uh, you know, the Countess divorcing the Count and um, the nobility being affected in this way, the nobility who would have been watching the play at the time would never have accepted that ending. So it had to end with, all is forgiven, and you know we, we did take this risk, but it all goes back to the way it is, and the servants are the servants, and the nobility are the nobility, and they can do what they want, and, and we go back to being the servants. And that, that, it had to end that way, but the message is still there. So. And Figaro's wit and his, his, his pull against this is, is very uh, apparent, I think, in the piece. Um, Kyle, you have um, your first aria, Sevo Ballare. It's pre- preceded by a very important recitative. And we learn that the Count is proposing a sort of new arrangement for, for all of your lives. What is that about? And Figaro is not particularly happy about it. Well, um, are you referring to... Um, Going to London and all of that? Yeah, well, I think London is just a... It's just a... Um, is uh, what's the word? It's a um, it's a way to distract. It's a distraction. It's it's uh, to get out of the element, to get out of, to put us out of our comfort zone, to get us in another town, so he can. I don't know. It's like taking a business trip at the ho- and being at the hotel and uh, hoping to sneak into Susanna's room. And because he's going to be a diplomat there, right? Well, yeah. I mean. Um, and he has he has assigned us both to to accompany him, where he just plain and simple hopes to. And the only reason to have Susanna along is to, so he can have his way with her. And I'm not sure why he has me go at all, really. Why doesn't he have me just stay stay back at the at the castle and and have Susanna accompany him? Other, I guess that would be inappropriate. But yeah. Um, yeah, and it's all because he he wishes to repeal. Um, well, no. He, he was, yeah, I'm back at that <laughs> problem again. Whenever I hear it on NPR, I have to think through it. Okay, they're repealing the ban on no... Yeah, okay. Um, or just today, the handgun thing that just came up. Um, anyway, so I, I think it's just all kind of distraction for that one goal of sleeping with Susanna, right. whom he's been enamored with for however long. What are the particular qualities in Susanna, Danielle, that would make her valuable to the Countess? What about the Susanna-Countess relationship? How does that work? 
Well, I think Susanna and the Countess are very much in the similar work positions as the Conte and Figaro. I mean, she works for the Countess. She's a chambermaid. She has to clean and prepare things for the Countess, prepare her dresses, prepare, dress her in the morning, be there before she goes to sleep. But within that work day, there is a lot of... Um, friendship that is born between the two of them. Um, they're both young women. Um, many people don't always realize that the Countess was probably only a few years older than Susanna, so she's not like, you know, 45. I mean, she's maybe like 25, and Susanna is maybe 19 or something, mm -hmm. you know? So um, there is a great friendship between the two of them, and I think the Countess pours her heart out to Susanna, you know, why can't my husband love me the way Figaro loves you, and what you guys have is so special, and, um, but it is a, a very embarrassing thing for her, being, uh, you know, in the nobility. Um, and a quality of Susanna's, well, I said this to you, I think, when we, when we spoke, I think her innate goodness is very apparent, even in the beginning. I don't think she likes to hurt people. I don't think she, I don't think she likes to have to spell things out for people. I think she was reluctant about spelling out the Count's intentions to Figaro, and it's only because Figaro just won't see in that moment the real truth that she has to tell him. Um, similarly with the Countess, I think it's very uh, ugly for her to have to report this news of the Count's intentions back to to the Countess who she loves. So um, I think I think you see her goodness throughout. I mean, I think there are a lot of amazing qualities about Susanna. I mean, I think she's resourceful. I think she's very witty. She's really on the ball, as is Figaro. She's... Um, ready to deal with just about anything. I mean, everything and anything that happens that day, she's right on it. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I love this character. I think she's, I think she's one of the smartest women, and, and, and she also understands where she is in life, and so she, she deals with the hand that was dealt her. She deals with everybody in the cast at one point or another in the opera. Mm. What is her attitude, for example, towards Cherubino? Oh, I think, you know, I think that Susanna's very playful with him. I mean... Is it sort of older sister? Um, not sure about that. I, I think that Cherubino's a strapping, young, noble man. Um, he's not a servant, and so... Um, the fact that he's lusting after everybody, I mean, I'm sure everybody's really flattered. He's a dashing young man. Um, and I think that her heart is with Figaro. That is for sure. But teasing a young boy, it's a bit, he's probably 16, 17. So, it, you know, it's somebody in her same age group. There's a little bit of the line erased between the nobility and the servants because he is young. And um, she doesn't mind poking him a little bit and, and letting him sort of lust after her. I mean, he, she knows it's fake. She knows it's not really based on her. It's just, it's based on the fact that Carabino has a gravitational pull to everything that's female. And um, <laughs> it's kind of funny to her. And I think she adores him, actually. And, and when, when, I, when Susanna is dressing him up, I mean, I actually gave him a kiss because it's just, there's that element of sort of, being able to control and 
play around with this kid because he can't control himself. So that's quite fun. What about Figaro's attitude toward him? You sing your second aria, Non Piu Andrai, directly to him. I've seen it played very different ways. I've seen it played very cruelly, mm. and then I've seen it played totally lightheartedly and everything in between. So how, what are the different ways that you've been asked to play that scene with Carabino in the productions you've done, and, and then how do you prefer to do it? Uh, usually it's been in a lighthearted manner. I realize that he's not, he's not going to end up going off to war. I've told him to stay. Um, and so it's, it's in a teasing manner, in a, in a big, certainly in a big brother sort of way. Um, I know all about his you know, hormonal instincts. And <laughs> as, as Figaro had, was there recently, or was probably still in the, mid, in the midst at 25, whatever. And um, who are we kidding? 45. Um, and uh, so I'm not threatened by Cherubino. Um occasionally he will upset me a bit but yeah it's very much like a big brother thing um, so yeah I'm trying to think if I've ever really treated him as a hostile witness as it were in that aria um, I'm not sure what, what directors would be thinking about and deciding to make it rather cruel the treatment of, of Carabino in that aria. It doesn't really make sense to me. No, it doesn't make sense because I'm, my plan is also to, to keep him around, you know, and to use him, um, you know, as a colleague. Um, so I don't... Right. But I, you know, and I have... I don't have any younger brothers, but I have younger um, brothers-in-law, my wife's younger brothers. And so, you know, it's kind of the same way. You know, re- you really ride them, give them a hard time, but there's love, of course. And so I imagine it's just like having a younger sibling. Kyle, have you, in other productions, have you ever played the Count? No, no. I, would, would you want to? A good friend of mine said, you should, you should sing the Count. I said, well, I can sing all the notes, but it's for the same reason that I can sing all the notes in a Marcello in Bohème, but it, no, it's just, it's not... My voice, I don't think, is a baritonal... I mean, it, it is baritonal in some ways, but it's not... I, I did a Guglielmo once in Così, and n- never again. I mean, I sang all the notes, as I said, but it just it wasn't, it wasn't my... Yeah, in my comfort zone. Um, but for the Count... Yeah, this same friend, my best buddy in the world, he sings the Count, and um, he, he's done Figaro as well. And he says, the count's not that, it's not difficult. I mean, just, you know, I'm not taking away from, from Mariusz, I'm not saying that it's uh, less or more difficult. He was just saying, to, to, to sing it as a bass, because I'm a bass with high notes, and he's a baritone. But, uh, no, I don't, I don't know if I'd ever consider it. Danielle, you began your Met career as Barbarina, the, the, who is the gardener's daughter. How did that experience... Uh, did it prepare you at all for singing Susanna? Do you remember the, the observations that you made of Susanna at that time? Um, well, the year that I auditioned for the Met, I was a freshman at Manus College of Music in New York. Um, I was 18, and I was learning Susanna for the Manus College production. So I had already Susanna in the blood. I felt it coursing through my veins and I was dreaming already of you know of, you know performing it so um, 
But of course, I, nothing could have prepared me to sing Barbarina at 19 at the Met. Um, and the cast was phenomenal. Cecilia Bartoli, Renee Fleming, Bryn Terfel, and Suzanne Menser, uh, Dwayne Croft, James Levine. It just went on and on. And I couldn't Daniel believe... Denise. Well, I, I, was a, I was a kid, so I really couldn't believe that I had such an opportunity. Um, and what I remember about working with those amazing singers I just named was their incredible sense of professionalism. And they were so lovely as people. Um, and I went there, prepared, did my thing, did Barbarina. I had a great time working with Jonathan Miller, who I've worked with subsequently, and he is incredible. Um, and I watched and kept an eye on things. I watched a lot of rehearsals from the front row of the house, you know, the other scenes. I just watched Maestro Levine conducting and sort of just tried to soak up things. I didn't actually, I don't remember watching scenes and sort of like putting it in the brain and thinking like, this is what I have to do. I think because... I was performing as well already at that age, and so I was. I was also. I had my other my ideas of what I, what I felt about this role, and I had just done it in college, so I had a taste of what it was like, and um, I just put it away really after that. But I mean, obviously, the experience of being in that production with those singers was phenomenal, really phenomenal. There have been some Susannas uh, who have had Carabino in their active repertoires at the same time and then have eventually sung The Countess. So I wanted to ask, just as I asked Kyle about singing The Count, do Carabino and or The Countess attract you? Carabino, no. I'm not so... I don't, I don't know why. I've never thought of singing Carabino, but mostly because mezzos... Tend to do it. Tend yeah. to do it. I, uh, I think Christine Schaefer sang it in Salzburg, and that was the first time I'd heard of a soprano. And Stratus doing it, but, did it at the yeah, and, also. and then you have all the singers from you know the, the other decades that, that did it. But in this time, I've never, se- I've seen mostly mezzos do it, so I haven't had that on my brain at all. When I sang Barbarina, there was a lot of talk that I would like graduate to Susanna and then graduate to the Countess. It's a, something that. Um, I would be curious to try it. I have had teachers say that I should start singing the arias as an exercise. Um, I don't think I'll sing it now. I don't think I'll sing it in five years. I think that if it if my voice shows me that I could do it, I and that I have the vocal weight to do it, um, maybe I'll look at it at some point. I mean, I know the count is quite well now. When you do one role in a Mozart mm-hmm. opera, you tend to know all the roles, yeah. and so. Um, yeah, I'd be curious to see what that would be like. It would be very different. I think it's like, you know, Don Giovanni and Leporello. I was just going to say, it's kind right? of, I've done all four of the, yeah. the, the oh, really? Mazzetto, yeah. Commendatore, Giovanni, and Leporello. Really? Yeah, and you just know them. And there are scenes where you can just, you can be Switch. schizophrenic and just go, literally, I could do it right now. Kyle, you did your first Giovanni, what, last year, was it? Two years ago? The first, oh, the role of Giovanni? Yeah, the role of Giovanni. Well, I did in grad school in English at Indiana University in 1997, I think, or 96. And then <laughs> after that, the first one that I did, yeah, professionally yeah. in Italian was in Minneapolis, and that was in 05, I think. Yeah. And, I mean, I can just imagine after doing Leporello what, you're, what must have been going through your mind the whole uh, time. It was, it was rather thankless. It's a thankless role. You know, you don't really have a great aria. You have kind of these things, you know, the Finca Lavina, which you kind of race through. And there's the not, rather nice uh, De Vieni alla Finestra, yeah. of course. Um, 
it's a lot of it's a lot of um, bombastic usage of the voice. There's not a not that Leporello was a great Verdi moment, but <laughs> you know, um, but uh, I've done it with a number of dons who 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 just they say, oh, I just I. And we'll be backstage and they're just trying to sing something like that because the rest of the evening is ha, 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 you know? <laughs> um, a lot of what transpires in both those pieces, Don Giovanni and The Marriage of Figaro, it happens through recitative. And you both, in this opera, in the Figaro, you sing a great deal of it. A lot of it you sing to each other. Mm-hmm. And every singer I know uh, who deals with Mozart recitative finds it a challenge. So I wanted to ask both of you, first of all, I want to say that what these two do in all of their scenes together when they are singing recitative is a lesson that I think every singer should listen to them. It's in absolutely what? brilliant what they do with okay. the language. So, bra- bravi, so bravi to both of you. So has it been a challenge for you to, to grasp this style or did it come sort of naturally to you? Um, no, it didn't come naturally. I don't think it comes na- if it comes naturally... You're, a, uh, you're lying if you say it comes naturally, I think. There goes my answer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a lot of recits in these two that we've been speaking about, uh, Giovanni and, and uh, Figaro, they can be done in, well, as well as, as well as most recits, they can be done in so many different ways. Um, the, the, the point of recit is to, is to actually you know, put forth key elements in the plot. There's a lot of information being conveyed. They're of utmost importance. It's not a monologue. Usually it's not a soliloquy. Um, and so it's important to know, in Mozart, Da Ponte, to know the rhyme scheme. And it took a couple Figaro's to figure that out. A couple times to actually figure it out. Oh, that rhymes with that, rhymes with that, rhymes with that. Um, to know the important words, to know words that you don't necessarily have to sing. You can talk them more. You can bend the bend the bend the pitch a bit, or um, you just know the important words. And uh, it 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 did take a number of figuros for me to to or a number of I should say Mozart pieces. I remember when I was learning Leporello, I remember saying to myself, you will never learn this. You will never learn this. Seriously, you will never forget it. You will never learn it because it's so much. Um, I want to pause just to, to ask you if you have questions to pass them to center, and, and Jesse will come and pick them up. So, Danielle, how have you dealt with recitative, and uh, has it been a pleasure at all, or has it been totally hard work? Um... Mozart recitative for me is a lot easier than Handel recitative in terms of deciphering the syntax and the phrases. Um, the 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 text of Handel recits is like it is like a, a puzzle, and you have to unjumble the phrases to figure out what verbs belong to which subject, and it's <laughs> very very difficult. Flowery, um, hmm? flowery. Yeah, flowery. you really have to really move things around and and make sure that you really do understand what's going on. Otherwise, you could look really stupid. Um, And Mozart recitative is more spelled out, I would say. It's straightforward. Um, 
I wouldn't say, I think you're right, I don't think it comes naturally to anybody, but I will say that um, I think certain singers take more organically to Mozart in general as a style. I mean, some of our colleagues, they, they just like hate Mozart, or they don't sing it, or they don't get it, or they can't get it, so they don't mm-hmm. like it. Um, and, th- and then we might have a different view of a different composer that, you know, maybe we don't understand verismo or something. And so Mozart is not something that everybody can do. It's difficult. And um, getting your mind and your mouth around these recits is very hard. And then when it becomes really fun is when you understand the recit so well that you can play. And yeah. we, know, we never say our recits in the same way. Um, and that's because I think we both know the piece. Um, we both speak Italian, so you know there's a real sense of you can really play, um, and that's that's when it's really engaging because you don't just go on autopilot. And um, uh, Sir right. Andrew Davis, who was conducting these performances, said um, to us just before I think the dress rehearsal, he said, "Just remember to keep listening, to really listen." And I think. What I've found challenging with recits sometimes in general is that as an Italian speaker, I can sometimes speed through recits because you speak them at the speed at which you think of them. And if it comes quickly and you can have the facility of of the tongue to to roll those phrases out, they can go very fast. And um, I've noticed, for example, in the lyric that, you know, you have to make sure that these, these words get out there. It's a big, big house. And so... Um, listening and just really remembering that when you hear something that you know so well that you have to pretend you never heard that phrase before, that when you say something, it's the very first time you're saying it, and and that keeps it fresh, I think. I wanted to talk a little bit about your arias. Kyle, you have three. So do they differ radically in, in style, what they demand of you vocally? Yeah, the tessitura of the th- of the f- of Apri Tempo is a, a bit is high. Act four aria. Yeah, act four yeah. aria, the final aria, um, and it's at the end of the night. You know, it's the end of a tiring evening, and um, the the tessitura is the, what's tough for that one. Um, non Pion Rai is one that is it's kind of base one hundred and one. I I was started studying it twenty years ago or more um, in school, and so. That one just it's kind of rolls out, no problem. Um, could be simply because I've, I've studied it so much. Sebol um, Barare has the impression of being just a simple little cavatina cabaletta, but it's I, I won't call it the most difficult, but it's it's more difficult than Non Pion Rai for me personally speaking. Um, what do we get of his character in these three uh, pieces? Seval Ballare is uh, his feeling of of superiority to the to the royalty, which, as Danny was saying before, is kind of dangerous in the time. A couple centuries ago, uh, the revolutionary ideas behind it. Non Piondrai, um, his relationship with Cherubino, just the teasing manner. Um, and Apritempo is jealousy and anger towards Susanna, and then, n- not rightfully so, by extension, towards all of femaledom. Oh, that's <laughs> <laughs> Evil. Um, that we are. 
Danielle, you have two RAs. What function do they serve in this plot? Mm, well, venite inginocchiatevi. It's it's a kind of a tricky aria because it's this sort of it's again it's like seems some simple. it's like it seems simple but it's harder to make a masterpiece out of it because yeah. there's so much going on um, and it's very light and bouncy and it's not meant to be. It's, I don't think it's. I don't think he aimed that to be a big showcase for Susanna. It is a piece that it's a little vignette that it, that happens in the middle of Act Two. Um, it's a beautiful moment when they're all playful and the the risks and the dangers of what they're doing are not apparent at all, and they just forget about it. For explain a minute. what is actually going on. Well, in this aria, um, the what's happened at the beginning of Act Two is that they've had to convey this terrible news to the countess and then Figaro comes in with a plan he's a man with a plan and they talk through all of these ideas of how they're going to get around this and Figaro has the idea that instead of um, Carabino going off to war he's going to stay and he's going to be dressed as a woman and he's going to go in place of Susanna to meet the count and they think you know this is hilarious and uh, ingenious idea, and um, it's all very risky. And oh, they're gonna you know, Carabino's gonna be sent into the countess's chambers to be dressed and prepared for this, which is you know on so many levels for so many reasons very titillating to the countess and Susanna because it's fun, because the countess has a little tenderness for Cherubino that um, you know with the void of her husband being such a jerk. Um, Carabino is this like dashing young man who just you know completely googly eyed for her so um, she definitely has a soft spot for him so so this is what's happening and then in the aria Susanna basically takes the command and starts dressing up Carabino as a woman telling him to try to remember or pretend like the countess is not there so not to get sheepish and you know to to sort of get his courage out and start to act like a woman um and she walks him through everything and it's you know it's it's quite a i get quite tired actually when i sing that aria because i'm competing so much for carabino's attention carabino only cares about the countess so you know i'm trying to get him to you know do something here and it's very hard um but it's about pacing. I mean, but that's a light, fluffy aria, I would say. And the Vieni is the complete opposite because of obviously the, um, as Kyle said, it's the end of the night, which is uh, big for Susanna because she's basically been on stage for most of the piece. And um, I actually started learning the Vieni when I was about 13, 14 years old. I was singing it. I had no idea how difficult it was. I thought, well, this is amazing aria. I love this aria. I, I sang it like it was a piece of cake. I mean, I just, I had no idea the pressure <laughs> that comes with singing the Vieni. And it was only as I became older that people said, well, this is such a hard aria. You know, how do you sing this aria? It's so hard. And suddenly, shoot, it's hard. Wait a minute. <laughs> And then you start to get all nervous, and I mean, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm nervous when I sing that aria because it's all about um, line, 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 and it's it's like sort of spinning a needle and thread, you know, getting the thread, the thread through that needle hole. It's a very fine point of singing, and when you've been on stage all evening and you've 
run the gamut from soft singing, loud singing, floaty singing, uh, very staccato singing, um, ensemble singing, really banging it out at the end of Act Two, and you you've, you're always you've got on the brain. I have to save something for Davieni, and it's not an aria that you can wriggle out of. You can't just um, like sing it all loud or boom your way through it. You have to be able to come back to that very fine line. So. It's scary, but it's wonderful. And so everybody loves that moment. And you just, you know, cross your fingers and pray. And um, when it works, it really works, though. Ensemble really is the name of the game in this Mm. piece. So I wanted to ask both of you what your favorite portion of ensemble singing in Figaro is and why. uh, Mine is the sextet for the dramatic. In Act 3. The dramatic, yeah, when when it's discovered that... um, Marjolian and Bartolo are really my parents, and I was I was uh, given up for adoption many years ago, and uh, that it's, look just, is classic. it's just for the dramatic the dramatic aspects or the just the comedic comedic aspects of that scene, um, the interaction between the characters. I as um, I always look for, and I kind of gravitate toward my favorites toward um, opportunities to sink your teeth into drama or in this case drama meaning the comedy aspects of it mm. and like I said the interaction between between the characters and it's uh, it's very cute musically <laughs> that's my favorite wonderful Pete. it's also that. very cute to watch in this production because um, <laughs> our our Dr. Bartolo is is a very imposing guy and he, Andres of Australia, and he is able to pick you up. Yeah, he's a big man. And, <laughs> and he holds you a, well, at least a, a foot above the ground for I, probably a minute. I go about 190, and he just kind of takes me and lifts <laughs> me up. Uh, he's about six foot six, I'd say. He's a big it's guy. It's priceless. Um, Danielle, what's your favorite ensemble in Figaro? I love every piece, as I'm sure Kyle will agree, that it's very hard to choose. I think I ha- I, my favorite, favorite piece is the trio in Act Two with the Count, the Countess, and Susanna. But I have a sentimental reason for that because when I was studying Figaro as a freshman in college, um, I sometimes find as a musician that moments in my life are marked by music. And it makes a sort of mental track, a musical track, like a soundtrack in my mind. When I hear music, it brings me back to a particular moment in time. And um, I remember studying this music and translating every word. I didn't speak Italian when I was a freshman in college, so I actually used a dictionary and like went through 475 pages. I don't. I was completely insane. And had you not heard of CD liners? <laughs> Yeah, remember the part where I said I was a nerd? Um, so, yeah, I, but I remember going through the trio and dreaming about having an international career as an opera singer. And I thought, like, what if I get the chance to really do this and really go out and travel and perform this music? Like, how, like what an amazing thing. I could, I could be an opera singer and, and perform Mozart, like, over and over again on the stage. And it really, that music reminds me of that moment and I felt of great reverence as a first-time student of Mozart learning the piece. So I, I kind of like try to not cry and stuff when I when I sing it because I think back to how I how much I love the music, and then it just sort of makes me get all choked up. I'm sure this audience and our listeners who will be um, streaming the podcast will want to know. What do you most enjoy about performing with each other in this particular piece, which is the first piece that you've done together? Not to put you on the spot or anything. 
Shall I go first? Um, well, I, one of the things, I mean, there's a lot of things I admire about you, Kyle. Um, but uh, <laughs> one of the time. things I really appreciate about Kyle is how conscientious he is. Um, because, you, like, Kyle is full of fun and, you know, always thinking, always, you know, on the, on the spot with it. But he's also very careful about the way in which we stage things and making sure that we're safe. There's a lot of, like, bumping about that happens with Figaro. There's a lot of moments when, um, you know, there's a lift that we have in the end of Act Two, and there's just, there's a lot of stuff going on. And I, it's very easy when performers are out there and we all have, like, very strong temperaments um, in a good way. I mean, in, in that we're all exploring and trying to find ways to, to make things work. But... Sometimes that energy can collide with people, and you know, you bump into people. Joyce DiDonato jumped off the stage in the dress rehearsal and hurt her ankle again. So these things happen a lot, and um, I've really appreciated how responsible you've been with making making everything just perfect. And it, when that happens, then everything just flies. And I've really felt that um, we've well, I've had a good time. We've had a good laugh. Absolutely, I think, haven't we? Yeah, maybe it's the parent in me. You know, <laughs> don't want to get hurt. Uh, practice makes perfect. That's what I think, you know. And it, yeah. it uh, and it should, as you touched on before, it should seem like it's the first time we've done totally. it. But you, the truth is, and uh, and maybe some of you will be surprised by this. You do it so many times, and it's, I mean, repetition, repetition, repetition. Regardless of what the skill is, uh, this is no different. And so, by the time we get to performing it, we're up there, and you know, I'm I'm not thinking about a whole lot other than. You know, it's kind of, it's just, it's just flowing out of yeah. you, you know, and I might be thinking, let's see, dinner tomorrow night, I think I'll cook some pork chops, <laughs> or uh, did I leave the stove on, or, uh... no, of course you are in the moment, you are thinking about the text, because the, the most important thing is to yeah. communicate as an artist. Um, what I like about Danny is uh, she, uh, I mean, she's, she's just effervescent she's always bubbly always you know always uh she and then she mentioned also the first day of, of staging you know and never met each other and blah 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 and then and then we get into a scene and then bang we have to kiss and canoodle and all this stuff you know and and it's just it's just it's just no problem at all you know <laughs> that's not what i mean <laughs> her husband is in the audience tonight so where is he that's not what I mean. It's just that it's it's professional. Yeah, yeah it and is scary to do that when you haven't met somebody, so you have to like sort of be trusting. But it's very easy to do that with Likewise. you, Kyle, because we're we're very responsible performers. <laughs> and I mean that. <laughs> you also have to be incredibly trusting because at the you, as you said at the end of Act Two, Kyle, you have to pick Danielle up and yeah. carry her off. My father was a firefighter. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> he's great. Oh my god, I've been so nervous about it, but he's wonderful. Um, Actually, one of our questions, I mean, again, you, I think trust is really important in a situation like this. Um, the question is to you, Danielle, and it says, um, did you really slap Figaro? Yes. Kyle, what does that feel like? Just, I mean, how is... You can't, no, I you, didn't. It was all acting. <laughs> no, we don't. We, it's all stage stuff. It's, it's very convincing. And, you know, there, there we were up in the broadcast booth listening to it, and we heard this... You know, the sound was That's really... Right here. Well, we can show you it to you. You want to do it? Yeah, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> so which one 
which which one? There are like three of them. Yeah, there's so many times. Was it Senti Questa? Senti Questa. Senti Questa. Senti Questa. Senti Questa. Great technique. Those yeah. of you who are, st- I should say, to those of you who are streaming this on our podcast, I'm sorry you didn't see that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, it's um, well, it, there's a technique to it. I mean, we had it's a bite coordinator come It's a standard stage. In. It's a standard stage slap. I've done it. I mean, it's just he's great. I mean, the the sound comes from Kyle, and I have to make sure that my hand goes close enough to his face that basically, if that's Kyle's face, I have to go like that. In a way, but you have to go at it. You know, and make sure it's timed on the music, so you know totally. every night. So that's senti questa. Uh. Yeah. And for me, I'm just faced a little bit upstage, and on the way to grabbing my face in pain, it's just <laughs> smacking that. Yeah, so. it's great. Uh, similarly, with hair pulling and things like Magic that, you never pull the actual hair. I mean, you just you put your hand there, and then the right. person goes like this, and it looks like you're pulling their hair. Um, Secrets one, of the a, trade. Another question. Um, did anything happen in the opening performance yesterday that surprised you? I was telling Kyle before we walked in that when I first went out to sing, um, my first line is right at the foot of the stage into the house, so the voice straight away into the space. And what surprised me was that with the change in the amount of people in the audience from the dress rehearsal to the opening, my sound got sucked up, and I couldn't hear anything. Um, it took a minute for me to just reambient my ear to the new sound of the space, but I didn't notice it for the rest of the piece. It was just that first line where I'm singing so far out. So that was quite a surprise. Hmm. My pin also fell out yesterday. Because sometimes, uh, you know, they, they, sometimes little things are changed on the opening that people forget to mention. So I've been using a T-pin, and uh, suddenly they put a big bobble on the end of this T-pin. Yeah. So I put it in my apron, but the bobble was so heavy, it knocked the pin out. And when Anna Schwanewilm said to me, Prende una spilla, like, take this pin, it'll be like a seal to the letter. She, she went to look for the pin, and the pin wasn't there. And she just went... So we had to sort of fake. I had to fake that I found another one in my apron right. pocket, and then we spent the next rest of it sort of hunting around. Where is the pen? Where is the pen? So, I mean, those things happen. They're sort of fun. I mean, we had the giggles about it then for the rest of, the rest of that scene. It's a, rare, it's a rare show where something doesn't, not, not on that level, change, but where something small doesn't change. Yeah. Um, but yesterday, honestly, I, I can't think of anything. I think it was very, very comfortable, comfortable um, personally speaking. So I'm, I'm not sure anything yeah. really surprised me. We altered a couple things um, because of uh, injury in the cast, but uh, they worked fine. Yeah, I know. Um, another question from the audience. Do you have a favorite comic situation in this opera? A particular comic moment that just that you so look forward to in this production or in this opera? Yeah, in this opera, this opera in general. Yeah, I mean the, the sextet is always yeah. my favorite. <laughs> the sextet's so it's fun. just it's just um, rife with possibilities, comedic possibilities, and um, but the but the at the crux of what makes this scene for me one of my favorites is that if you play it in 
with true emotions, it becomes more convincing and funnier. You know, um, that's kind of like a rule of comedy. Not that I'm a great student of comedy, but it's one of the rules of comedy is you try and give it true meaning. I mean, true uh, feelings behind it, and right. and it'll like and it has a better chance of working. There's a great moment for the two of you in Act Four that nobody ever talks about. Danielle, it's when you're disguised as the Countess, and <laughs> and, and Figaro yeah. is wooing you. That's quite funny. And and then it turns into a sort of screaming match for, and you're hitting him and all that. And and just be, with with the way the two of you do it, it works really really brilliantly. Thanks. So is that is that a moment that that whole encounter in the fourth act that that you look forward to? I look forward to that because then all my difficult singing is yes. done and I can really let fly. It's um, incredibly tiring. It's uh. exhausting. But, I mean, you, you can let it out. Christ River, right? it's the I mean, end. It's and so you can, you can have a, a big old whopping time with it. Um, we had a very funny thing happen in the dress rehearsal. Do you remember <laughs> with my cape? My dresser had accidentally hooked oh. my cape, and I had all these snipes. I'm supposed yes. to like reveal myself like a superhero as Susanna, and then I did, and this thing wouldn't come off. And I spent <laughs> the rest of the duet like trying to hit him and get my cape off, <laughs> and it wouldn't come off. And you so know, I just was exhausted. I was really exhausted. That reminds me of one thing. Going back to one of your questions about things that kind of went wrong during that precise scene. At one point, I'm supposed to, I'm kneeling. I mean, it's an active role, so I'm all over the stage. And at one point, I knelt, and I hear this. Oh, oh no. Oh, yeah. So there was about a four-inch uh, gash oh, in my... Oh, yes! You told me that! Yes, in my pants. Oh, yeah, well, we were, on, we were on stage. We were on stage, and during the music, there's one point where we embraced, and we embraced, and I say, I just ripped my I pants. I my pants. <laughs> and then... We were singing together, and I was trying to figure out like which way to hug Kyle so that we that you guys wouldn't see the split. Thankfully, was it was like, right Where underneath. Is that split? Where? I can't see it. It was in the back, thankfully. So. <laughs> Costume malfunctions. That's another that. session, guys. Oh. Um, my last question for you is: um, I'm wondering if you have any particular colleagues or mentors who have been especially influential in shaping the way that you perform Mozart, whether a conductor, another singer, a director, a scholar, whoever, who has just helped you understand and sort of developed your ideas of what this piece and the other Mozart pieces that you sing are about. Yeah, sure, many. Mentor, I would have to say my teacher, Giorgio Tozzi at Indiana. I mean, if there's a better Figaro, I don't know. Um, we we spent four years just in, interpreting, you know, I mean, just doing a lot of Mozart. That was a, a lot of his career, Mozart and Verdi. Um, colleagues, I learned a lot about the interaction as we were talking about the recits, the interaction between two people who really know the recits inside and out. Simon, Simon Keeley inside and I have done a couple of Giovanni's together and just, you know, performing with him and hanging out with him and just going through this stuff with him is, is quite, a, quite an experience. And uh, there was a conductor, my first Leporello. I, I can't think of the name right now, um, but he was very instrumental as well. So if you're listening, whoever you are. <laughs> Leporello. <laughs> um, uh, for me, well, I, again, it, it does go back to your first teachers because um, 
I mean, when you start learning Mozart arias, the first people that get in there to tell you about the fundamentals of the style are your teachers. Um, and they combine that with technique in addition to mm-hmm. like the style of phrasing. So, um, yeah, my, all of my... I've had a few different voice teachers over the years, um, but a lot of the teachers I had when I was a young teenager were right in there um, giving me what I needed to know about the style of singing Mozart. Um, and definitely from that Barbarina, working with James Levine was fantastic. I still remember some of the note sessions that we had with him, and they were incredibly subtle. Um, and he, I mean, he's, for me, one of the wisest people in the world. I just think he's a fountain of information, and um, the smallest anecdote that he shares has a wealth of information to teach you about being an artist. And um, I did learn a lot from him in a sort of, I can't really place the specifics of it, but everything he says is is so, so important that it just goes into your system. Um, I just did a Mozart album with Sir Charles McCarris, and um, the first time that I had a chance to work with him was at his birthday party gala concert, which he invited me to perform in. And um, I never had such a feeling... I mean, you work with conductors, right? And you... Sometimes you have a vision of how something's going to go, and then the conductor has his vision, and it's normal that there's going to be some overlap and some discrepancy. So maybe the tempo's not exactly the way you imagined it, but it, it works. And what I remarked on with Sir Charles is, you know, I just met him, and we went to sing Exultate Jubilate together, and the way in which he conducted it was just like my dream version. It was what I heard in my head. It was what I felt in my pulse. And it, it, I never felt like... It was like the shoe fit. It just fit perfectly. And so to make a Mozart album with him was like heaven. It was just heaven. And he was so he was so calm and so experienced. And um, his sense of understanding ornamentation in Mozart... It's tricky, you know, because you don't really know how much... I didn't certainly didn't. I mean, I knew with Baroque music, but I certainly didn't know with Mozart where to go and how much to He has his own do. scores. Yeah, he writes he his own cadences. He writes his own advance. ornaments. And, um, but it's, I find it's very tasteful as well. It's not over the top. And um, I really enjoyed being guided by him on that. And, and so, uh, yeah, he's definitely been a strong presence. And Kyle, you did Don Giovanni with him. Yeah, and yeah. Orlando and Magic yeah. Flute. Did you have the same experience that Danielle had? Oh, yeah. Well, you talk about um, just the little, little gems, you know, that, 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 that he just lets loose, and, or, among other conductors yeah. as well. Yeah, of course. And also, combining that with another uh, uh, question about mentors and, and whatnot, um, you, you, you just, it's like any other line of work. You, you go to school, and it's kind of an introductory thing. This is just this is just an introductory course in what you're hopefully going to be doing for the next you know number of decades, and so every engagement you have and every person you work with is a learning experience. And you take one co- one colleague's comments, you know, a couple comments, and you tuck them away, and it becomes uh, a composite, you know, and yeah. you combine them all, and it makes you the artist that you are now. And ten years from now, I'll look back ten years and say, man, I didn't know anything then. You know, yeah. that's, I guess that's life in general, right? You um, learn so much just from every everything. I mean, I can think now to things that I'm learning right now, just on the job doing this figure out about me. singing, breathing, just <laughs> yeah, from, from everybody. No, you do. You learn. Of course. You you do learn. Mm. You absorb things, or s- sometimes watching someone else do something, you learn mm-hmm. something about yourself and what you can do 
to to attack a particular problem in a better way and it's it's a constant learning process it's just astounds me how much there is to learn <laughs> on that very positive note i want to thank both of you thank you danielle thank you kyle thank you you've been listening to backstage at lyric the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at lyric opera of chicago for additional interactive content and to order tickets visit us online at lyricopera.org